Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Last week I said that I was going, I was planning to record um, the, uh, our lessons here. I started to, but then if you remember, I got a phone call in the middle of it. Yeah, that shut it down. Um, in case you're wondering, I think it was a wrong number. It was look, someone looking for a pastor, but it wasn't for me. It was, it was a strange call. I think it was a wrong number. I think they were probably going through the church, the synod directory. Yeah. All right. So, but, plan is going forward, so I only got about 10 minutes. But if you go to, I did put it up on the website, but it's not one that's accessible from the front page. So if you just go to stjohnswoodlake.com, and then just slash Romans. Romans, and it's there. If you forget and you want to find it there, or if you would like me to email you or text you a certain, just a specific date, class, I can do that, and then you can listen to it as you wish. This works. Ta-da. And we've got uh, better equipment this week. This red, if this red goes away, that means I'm not recording anymore. So <laughs> if, you, if you happen to see that and I don't notice, then it shuts off. But all right. Any questions? We had covered the first seven verses of Romans. Any questions from that before we get into the next section? Romans 1 through 7. 1, 1 through 7. All right. And we're going to jump into verses 8 through 17 today, hopefully. And we'll, once again, we'll read together. And just for the sake of doing this, I'll bump this up one more so it's a little easier to see. Should we begin there? Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Once again, I'll point out that, so we're reading here from the ESV, um, what you have, if you have the NIV in front of you, or as I said last week, I didn't encourage you to, if you have your own Bible, which you should, I said like, uh, if, you, if you 
this would be a good time to bring that so that you can mark up in your own um, text and so that when you go back and you see it again that you you have that um, you know underlying you can write in your Bible give you permission it's okay um, you know we feel like we don't want like to write in books and especially the Bible but you know provided you're not like crossing words out or like cutting words out like jo Thomas Jefferson in his scrapbook um, maybe you've seen that his Thomas Jefferson's Bible is it's a scrapbook essentially he cut out the sections that he thought were all right and the rest of it's a yeah it's an it's um, uh, and, and also that since we're looking at different translations, we'll recognize that there are different ways of translating Greek. I mean, the, these letters were written, the whole New Testament, written in Greek, so we're always dealing in translation if we're reading in English. And just like with every other translation, like there's different ways of translating something. They may be more or less um, helpful in capturing what the original is intending to say. If we point out that, you know, like and we had one last week, um, there's a section where I said, you know what, the NIV probably isn't the best way of translating that. It has the, kind of the wrong, the wrong picture. That doesn't mean it's a false translation or something like that, that you can't read it and you're going to go to hell if you do, or something like that. <coughs> Just that one may be more helpful than the other and might give you a better sense of what he's getting at. It's not going to harm your salvation by you know, reading a different translation necessarily. So, don't want anyone to think that because, oh, we said this, this translation would be better, that means, you know, I gotta go and get a new Bible. Um, there are better ones than others. All right, so this then begins, before we had kind of just the introduction of the letter, the, the address, who is writing it, to whom, to the Romans, and so now we're gonna, you know, this is really the, the body of the letter, we get started. All right. So he starts off, um, as many of Paul's letters do, with thanksgiving, um, and some, oftentimes some kind of commendation for the people that he's writing to. So he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Um, the first question I have on the sheet there is, what is the content of Paul's prayer with regard uh, to the Romans? He, he goes on later on here, and he says, I pray for all of you. What does he pray when, when he is praying with regard to the Romans, you know, like they come up in his prayers, he says, I make mention of you. What is, what comes up? What, what is part of his prayer um, regarding the Romans? Would it be for travels to get there? That's one part. Um, yes. So he says, I pray, and that's what he says here, asking, this is the thing that he asks when he prays regarding the Romans, that I might at last succeed in coming to you. We said last week that Paul had never been to Rome yet. Um, uh, so that's one thing that he was asking. He wanted to get to there. All right? uh, before he gets there, so that's, the, that's the petition. That's the thing that he asked. But he doesn't just ask. He also starts off. This is, this is in regard to them too, right? He gives thanks. Gives thanks um, and I, I just was reading, was reading this commentary um, this morning, um, Steckhardt's uh, Raymer brief, um, and he points out in, I, I like Steckhardt, it's in German so I can go slow, but, um, which is kind of a benefit of reading slowly, like that, 
makes it a little bit sink in a little better. But um, he points out this this my right here. I would I just skip over that. You know, like when I was reading it, you know, I, I didn't notice it. My God. What's the difference between just saying I thank God through Jesus Christ? He says my God. You see what he does there? He he, he shows what this um, what is that this God is is my God. Okay, so he could be kind of doing that, but... I mean, he's talking about our God. Yeah, yeah, so the, thus, the specific God. But even if he's, you know, he's saying, you know, this is the only God, the only true God. Yes, there are other, other um, you know, idols, right? Yeah. That he is mine. Um, it's a different... It, it's showing... It's showing his trust and, and love for this God. That he's mine. Yeah? Do you like kids? Some says I really like kids. But you don't love everyone's kids like you like your kids. My kids is different than just kids. Right? Yes? You, you, you don't love other people's kids. I mean, I know most people don't love other people's kids like you love your kids. Or like everyone's parents like you love your parents. Right? My God. Yeah? Um... It, it, it just shows. It shows that the that Saint Paul, um, kind of his own faith in God that's behind this. He's not just doing this as a professional apostle. Um, this is conviction on his part. Um, so, so there's a thanksgiving. Um, when he talks about this, he asking prayers. That it's kind of redundant the way he says it. Um, For God is my witness and my servant, my spirit, and the gospel of His Son. That without ceasing. I mention you always in my prayers. It kind of doubles up on that idea that I never stop. Um, and there's another, I forget now, um, where, where St. Paul says, you know, pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does that mean like 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're always hands folded, eyes closed, articulating some words? No. But that you never stop. That, that, that prayer is a is a concept, even if I'm not, you know, like actively engaged in prayer, it's, it's, it's not just this thing that I do and then don't do. Um, it's a part of life. So I would say that some um, to daily prayer helps us to pray, would be praying without ceasing. That is, you do it every day, right? Um, doesn't necessarily mean 24 hours. You have to sleep sometimes. But even there, you're, you're, you're kind of in it. Who did he write these letters to? The church? Yeah, so in the verses right before, verse 7, he says, To, to all those in Rome, um, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saved. So there's a Christian congregation there in, there in Rome. Yeah. As far as prayer, Pastor, um, you know, I go throughout the day, we do our prayers in the morning. I go through it talking about it. I kind of feel that's like praying. Yeah. And yeah, and, and and so that that can be kind of a form of that of saying where where and I think the, the thing that allows that um you know you know so we sometimes say you know a simple definition of prayer is talking to God, right? What what do you call a person who talks all the time but never listens? 
I mean, I don't know what you call them, maybe that you don't want to say aloud. <laughs> right? So, um, never. So, if we talk about you know, prayer as talking to God, um, I think what allows this kind of unceasing prayer is, is a listening, that it gives something for me to say. How do you learn to talk when you're a baby? Yeah, you listen and you mimic, right? Your parents speak to you, and you say something back, and eventually it starts to make sense, right? At first it doesn't, and that's the way it is with prayer. How do we learn to pray? Um, this language we're not born with. Um, it's something that we're given as we listen to, to our Father, and we imitate Him. And at first it might sound like gibberish, um, he, but he, you know how a, a parent will understand their kid and no one else does? Um, and and where, where God will understand, even when it's kind of awkward, uh, but it, it does, it's something that grows and it develops. Um, and, and so that kind of during the day, I think it makes it, makes it a lot um, easier or more fruitful when it's, it's kind of like it's, uh, it's responding to the things that I've, I've heard from God. I, I heard him, and so now, now, I, now I have something for him. All right, so and number two, Paul would eventually make it to Rome. He says, I want to go and see you. So far, I've been prevented. Um, eventually, he would make it there. Was that the answer to his prayers? So he prays it here. I pray that I'll eventually get there. He does. Prayer answered, right? Well, yes, I would say so. Does anyone recall the circumstances that led Paul to finally get to Rome? He's under arrest. And they're sending him to Rome to be in trial before Caesar. He appealed as a Roman citizen to Caesar. That's why he goes to Rome. Do you think that's what he had in mind when he prays? I hope I get there someday. <laughs> yeah? Do you ever have that? You pray for something. You want it. Turns out it happens not exactly the way you wanted it to, though. <laughs> Right? Not necessarily a pleasant thing. Yeah? Um, you know, you, perhaps if you, we oftentimes will pray for physical things and, and things kind of concrete like this, but you know, think about it, you pray for faith, strong faith. How, how does that often come? Through the cross. Right. Yep, through struggle and pain. Is that what, <laughs> we're not looking for it. But, but the way that God answers prayer is often not the way that we expect it to happen. Um, so it's something that's useful to keep in mind. Number three, Paul wishes to impart a spiritual gift to the Romans. So he says, I, I long to see you. I think that's fascinating too. Just that he says, I long to see you. I want to see you. This, this tenderness. He had never met these people. But I can't wait to see you. What is it that ties him to them is this message that he's going to get to, this message of this gospel, uh, that he wants to do this. I long to see that. I want to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Um, what is the purpose of spiritual gifts? So sometimes you'll hear a... Uh, you hear people, if you hear preaching about spiritual gifts, 
in, in other churches, I suppose, or uh, some other, sorry. I sometimes they'll, they'll talk about the spiritual gifts as these, these, these things in us for us to determine so that we can um, take, they have these things called spiritual gift inventories. You can go online. I don't necessarily recommend it, but you can go online and the, you can find these spiritual gift inventories. It's like a, it's like a, like a test that you can take to find out what your spiritual gifts are. And, and the, I think the idea is that, that, well, then you can use them. And it's kind of like taking one of those interest tests that you take in school to find out what career you should go into. Which, I remember taking those, I manipulated it so much because I knew I wanted to be a pastor. <laughs> That's what I want to do. <laughs> so I must be good at this. Um, you know? Um, totally do that. <laughs> I might have answered the questions knowing how I thought that they <laughs> Um, and, and so the idea is like, you know, like, oh, uh, we're, we're going to take a spiritual gifts inventory to find out what everyone's job should be in the congregation or something like that, a Christian congregation, because they're spiritual gifts, right? And so this is going to tell me if my, my you know, I've had, I mean, I've heard, have you ever heard someone say, like, oh, my spiritual gift is sarcasm or something like that? <laughs> um, <laughs> like, not really a spiritual gift. What, how, what does Paul say when he talks about this? He says, I've got a spiritual gift that I want to give. To give something to you, what's the purpose, does he say? To strengthen you. And then in 12, he kind of explains that we may be mutually encouraged. So the purpose of spiritual gifts, and this is true later, um, or I think it's 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks again about spiritual gifts, and then later in Romans too might come up. Um, the purpose is for each other. So the purpose is not for me to develop myself, but the purpose is for this thing that's going to strengthen someone else, to encourage them. Um, what had happened, um, and, and still happens today, um, in, it gives Corinth mostly, people bragging one of the spiritual gifts, and he has, Paul has a list in one place, and he talks about one, one place where, where the speaking in tongues is described as a spiritual gift, right? Another person, the interpretation of tongues, he says. Um, but they were used, the way they were using it, and it often still is today among those who kind of do that thing, um, or pretend to at least. Uh, they, it's kind of like a, a badge of honor for them, or like something that if you're a real Christian, you speak in tongues. And so those who don't are kind of like, what's wrong with me? Because I can't do this thing. And then eventually, if you do that long enough, there's enough pressure on it, you'll, you'll gibber. <laughs> you know? yeah. All of a sudden, it'll start coming up. Um, and it, but then no one knows what it, what it means, um, which indicates that, and that's what St. Paul says, like, without the interpretation, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's gobbledygook. Uh, but it's used as kind of like a a wedge between some Christians, super Christians that can speak in tongues, and some Christians who can't speak in tongues. Some Christians have this gift, and other people don't, others don't, and they're kind of lower class Christians. You know, but the real ones, they've got these spiritual gifts, right? See how contrary that is to what, what St. Paul talks about with this? He says this, this might be for someone else. Right? And so even with St. Paul, when he's, when he's talking about spiritual, when talking about the, the uh, tongues, it's something to benefit someone else. Um, 
whatever it is that he's talking about there in, in, in 1 Corinthians, we know that in Acts, the, the um, speaking in tongues was actually speaking in, in real languages, like on Pentecost. And the people heard them speaking the word of God in their own tongues. It was for the edification of others, right? Um, and that's, that's what the spiritual gift is for. So if it, if it divides, if it creates classes of Christians, that's not a spiritual gift, or it's not being used as such. Right? Spiritual gifts to build each other up. Paul wanted to carry out his ministry in Rome until now he had been prevented or hindered. Had Paul failed in some way? I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the Gentiles. Um, he wanted to come, but he couldn't. Um, you know, and, and where he's writing this, we said that he's probably writing this from Ephesus. You know, why can't he go from Ephesus? It would have been a much shorter trip to go from Ephesus or from, uh, from Greece and Corinth and, um, to go over to Rome from there. But he doesn't, you know, why he has to, why he can't go, go that direction? Because they've gathered an offering to take to the Christians in Rome. And he, he's got to go and take that with him. Um, and that's where he's going to get arrested. That's where he's going to get, end up going through, as it turns out. Um, but the question of what... Um, we make plans. Uh, Christians make plans. Congregations make plans. Pastors make plans. All good, you know, hopefully good things. We don't always we make the best decisions that we can make. Do they always turn out the way we want them to? No. Um, um, and that doesn't necessarily, you know, it can be a good plan, but it just doesn't, doesn't work out. And Paul, uh, yeah, it's, it's okay. But not everything comes to fruition. And, and as it turns out, he did, but not yet. How are Greeks different from barbarians. Now, you might have been surprised if um, other translations, you see the NIV, what does the NIV put there? Uh, Greeks and non-Greeks, okay. Which is kind of the way they use barbarians. So the word is bar, um, it's barbaros, um, which is where, like, where, where we get that word. It's from the, the Greek barbaros. Um, and the, where that comes from is so the, the the Greeks view themselves as sophisticated, as culture, right? Everyone else, they, they, they hear them speak, you ever hear this? You hear someone speaking in a language that's not yours, and what does it sound like? It, it, it sounds like just gibberish, right? Um, and so they listen to anyone who wasn't speaking Greek, and it just sounds like they're just going bar, 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 you know? And so they call them barbarians, right? Uh, so we, how do we use the word barbarians? Yeah, it's bad, and it's kind of like like vicious, kind of like you know, a barbarian is cruel and rude. They, they like bite the heads off of children and stuff like that, right? That's what barbarians do. Um, is but isn't that the way that we often look at others, and we kind of we don't know much about them, and so we kind of yeah, I've heard stories about those people and the things that those people do. Yeah, um, they, you know, whatever it is, whatever we, we, if we don't, we don't know who they are. Um, let's slip this away. 
Um, other it's kind of interesting. This is one example. So the MIP puts this non-Greek switch. Okay, so that was kind of their um, the the word for everyone else who doesn't speak Greek to them was a barbarian. Um, all the translations that I looked at, every single one except for the MIP, the MIP was the only one who did that. Um, change it to to non-Greeks. Every other one put put barbarians in there. It's, it's going to come up again a year later with the, the term Greeks and Gentiles. Um, but how are Greeks different than from barbarians? So the Greeks did have a, a, a great education system. Okay. Um, but they weren't the only ones. Um, down in, in Africa, they had great schools. In Alexandria, great library, better libraries. Um, uh, so, so it wasn't as if they were the only thing, but to the Greeks, they thought they were the better educated. So, so and there's, this, there's this habit of people to, to think of themselves as um, nicer, better educated, better looking than everyone else. Um, and so what do you do about those others? You make fun of them. I mean, um, I don't know, like, I don't, and I don't know why. But I remember growing up and like hearing Iowa jokes, like jokes about <laughs> Iowa, or Wisconsin people, but Iowa was kind of the more prominent one. I don't know why. I never, I didn't even know anyone from Iowa. <laughs> you know, but it, and and but then if you went to Iowa, you'd hear the same jokes I bet about Minnesota. You know, the same jokes you just flip them. You've heard, you know, I mean, I've heard the Packer Viking jokes. The, the, I've heard them exactly the same. Just you just switch them around. You know, it's just making fun of the other, and you just have this assumption that the other is lower than what what you are. Because I know, I know us. I know, and so we, we have some sympathy for us. Yeah. Um, so you know, like. Yes, there, there probably are some kind of con, you know, con, concrete differences. The Greeks, they did have great education uh, that up until the last century was kind of the model for all education in the West. Uh, Greeks and, and then the Roman also. So there, there, there's, some, there's something to it. But I would say that, when, and so when he says, we're, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, the assumption would be maybe he's, you know uh, the the barbarians maybe for especially for those in Rome. Rome is is the cultural center of the world at, at this point. It's it, it, and, and it will be even more so in, in coming centuries. Uh, it'd be very easy for them to kind of look down on everyone else. Um, but Paul says no, it doesn't matter. So he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Uh, it's, to, it's to say to everyone, um, even those who we would appear, who would seem to us as backwards and unworthy of our uh, attention or time. Uh, you know, so there's a question of whether or not, so that it's Christians in Rome are Jews or Gentiles. And I find it hard. The same thing with Galatians. It's really hard for me to tell 
from Paul's letter who the, how the majority of the congregation was made up. Um, you'd think in a city like Rome it's going to be mostly Gentiles, but then he, he well, we're going to see, he's going to end this section with a quote from the Old Testament. But the Gentiles would not have been familiar with it. Um, so that, like, I, I, I'm going to guess that the, these congregations were a mix of Jews and Gentiles. So, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So I don't, well, actually, going back to here. So when he goes, he says, I'm both to Jews and the barbarian, both to the wise and the foolish. That was the idea. The picture is that the barbarians are the foolish ones, the Greeks are the wise ones. The Greeks are sophisticated. The word sophisticated, the Greek word wisdom is sophos. So someone who's sophisticated has, has a wisdom. Um, that kind of both. And so, <laughs> no, it's like, to you also who are in Rome. There's the Greeks and the barbarians, and then there's you Romans. <laughs> um, like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. Right? I, I, want, I, I want to preach the gospel uh, to you also who are in Rome. And then we get to the, the kind of the theme, the, the kind of the theme verse of the whole book here. Like, sure. Well, that gospel stands out because he's not preaching the law. Well, he is going to preach the law. Chapter two is coming, but but I, he he wants to bring grace and you know uh, have a spirit work. Yeah, yeah. So this gospel, I mean, he's already mentioned that a couple of times. I think it was one talking about, at least once the first verse, you've got it here, you've got it here. This is kind of this. The gospel will come out, or the will come out, but it wouldn't be the way to get people to Rome and I'm eager to see him. Say, I'm going to come and preach the law to you. It wouldn't work. Yeah, if it were just the law, this would not, he wouldn't go. There'd be no reason to. Um, so, so this good news that he's going to come and proclaim um, is, is going to be the thing that's going to drive him to want to go and want, wants it there to be the, the content that he's preaching. So in, in verse 16, um, you, some of you know this passage. Anyone here have this as their confirmation verse? Or I'm not ashamed of the gospel. No one. It's a good one. Um, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First question, uh, number six. Why might someone be ashamed of the gospel? Trying to understand what this means. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What does that mean? Um, that someone would be ashamed of the gospel. Um, you got the power to save yourself. Would be kind of the, op yeah, the opposite of the gospel, like a, of a, and to prove a different message then. What does it mean to be ashamed? You don't want to show it. To kind of like hide it? Yeah. Why? Why? What? If someone's ashamed of something, why do they hide it? Like, what's the? Usually, there's a stigma about it. Having to be afraid, right? That kind of persecution. A fear of being uh, outed. Um, I think a lot of times when we we use the word uh, ashamed, we kind of we kind of think of the word embarrassed, like that's 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 like I uh, I don't know I'm I'm nervous. Um, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What 
So there could be that, um, that, that fear of reprisal. I mean, do you suppose that that might be the case kind of today of people not really wanting to let, whether it's specifically the gospel or just the fact that you are Christian at all, you know, even not dealing with the details of the Christian faith, but, you know, not really wanting everyone to know because there are, there are some pretty strong forces um, that will, um, you know, I mean, in, in, in some cases, like, uh, prevent you from you know, positions of, you know, um, where you have the Supreme Court of, of potential judges being questioned by, by the Senate Judiciary Committee meeting their members and saying, I don't know, they uh, was the one, one candidate for a, a judge seat. Uh, where one of the senators on the thing says the, the dogma speaks loudly in you, talking about one of the, the candidates because she's a Christian. Uh, that, 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 was, that was a reason that in that senator's mind to disqualify that, that judge from the seat on the bench. Um, you know, so that, that might tempt some of us to do this, and keep my mouth shut about this thing. Um, so there's maybe a fear of, of reprisal. I, I want to I want to kind of broaden our, our, that um, we think of it before men, I guess. That I I'm not I'm ashamed because of what others might think. Let's broaden that. Um, you, when you read the Psalms or the Old Testament, which is where this this concept of of being ashamed or shame um, really comes out of the, the, the Hebrew language in the Psalms. You have uh, like Psalm 25, I think, in you, O Lord, I trust, let me not be brought to shame or disgrace. Um, what, would it, what would it be that would really disgrace a Christian? Ultimately, if other people don't believe it, does that have disgrace a Christian? If other people reject it, does that disgrace the Christian? And so I guess we're starting to think a little bit bigger, like higher up, like before God. Am I going to stand there? Um, what would it be that would that would bring disgrace to the one who, who proclaims this gospel? I, my hunch is that the biggest thing that would disgrace or cause someone to be ashamed of the gospel is if it isn't true. Right? If you, like, so St. Paul in, um, in 1 Corinthians, where he says, if, uh, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. He says, then we are to be, if, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And we would be ashamed. He says, then no, no, no. Then we'd be found to be false witnesses. That the, so the opposite then, what's the opposite of being ashamed? It's always really helpful. You can't figure out what a word is, kind of the really color of the word. Flip it around. What's its opposite? That will sometimes help us clarify. What's the opposite of being ashamed? Bold. Yeah. Confident. That, that I, what is it that gives us confidence as Christians? I mean, ultimately, isn't it the fact that it's true? 
of our hope is on Christ and in his So if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Um, and so the, the um, not just his fear, what, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I'm, I don't care what other people think. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because, and, and he explains this, what is it that, um, or in other words, uh, why isn't Paul, wasn't Paul ashamed? Because the gospel is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Um, because, it, because it's true. And it's going to do something. This gospel message that I come, well, I'm not ashamed to, to bring it. I'm, I'm confident to come and proclaim this and travel across the known world. I mean, he's going to, you know, yeah, see, he goes under arrest, but, he, but on the way there, he gets shipwrecked and, you know, there's a lot of trouble to get to these Romans. I'm not ashamed um, of this because it's the power of God for salvation. All right. Number seven. Is the gospel powerful only for those who believe? He says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So is it only powerful for those for, who believe? So for the one who doesn't believe in it, then what is it? So the result, the result is not salvation, right? For the, uh, apart from whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, whoever does not believe will be condemned. So there's no salvation apart from faith. But does the gospel then empty of its power? So it doesn't result in salvation for these people. In one sense, you might say, well, no, it still is powerful, because even if it ends up in the same, the opposite result, right? It's still powerful. The word of God has power, um, and the Bible will talk about this. That it is—it's a—it's a dividing mark, um, or, or even Jesus, Simeon. Remember Simeon when Jesus is a baby, and he calls Jesus a sign that will be spoken against—the sign that's going to divide the hearts of, of men. Either they believe in him or they don't. It's this tipping point. Um, it, it, you either it, either believe it and that, that leads to salvation, or or you don't. Um, but either way. The message is powerful. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's sad. But, but for unbelief, the message of the gospel will oftentimes drive people away. We don't like that. We don't want that. But it, what it's doing is revealing the heart that's already there. Yeah. So someone who can become stubborn, and, and, they, and the more they hear it, the more they keep pushing away on it, because it's powerful. Would you think it would be too simple? You mean those who, who just have faith and believe? I can do better than that. I can do I, that, that myself. Yeah, that, that could be part of you know, like I. It's hard. It's hard. I think to try to like to to uh, psychologize unbelief. Because it, it's it's in one sense doesn't make sense. In another sense, it makes perfect sense because, like, why would you, you know, um, like, why do people refuse to do that? And that that's that's oftentimes part of it. Like, well, this this is too easy. Yeah. 
Yeah, which, which is usually an indication that they don't really understand it. Anyone, we like, just your very students ever say that history is boring? Yeah. <laughs> you know what that's in that, you know, you know what that, what that, what does that statement show? That they don't know history, right? Like, you know, or, or to say someone is, um, well, this person is boring. It shows that you don't know that person. There's no boring people, really. Um, or someone's bored in church, you know? Like, oh, I'm bored with church. Are you kidding me? You're in the presence of the Almighty God and you're bored? The God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it? And you're bored. The God who sent his son in human flesh to die on a cross. And when he died, the, 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 the earth shook and the, the, the sun refused to shine. The sun refused to shine when Jesus died and you're bored. The sun is more pious than you are, apparently. That's um, what the religious professor. So we studied all religions. Yeah. You just yeah. having faith is too simple. Yeah. Yeah, it's well and then you can have uh, flags that float in the air and that's more exciting than it's fascinating, isn't it? That that people will right. yeah, yeah, that they can know it and be so close to it. But miss you know, that's probably like like seeing the forest miss there is seeing the trees missing the forest kind of thing, you know, you you know. Um, but that shows, I think, that in, in, in two, sometimes the people that are closest to it, they, they, they're, and, it, and it, it's powerful stuff. So the word of God and the gospel here, that's when he says the gospel, it's kind of this, this, this term for, for the whole deal. And same with salvation here. It's the whole of God's plan of salvation. Um, it's powerful, whether you believe it or not. If you believe it, it's powerful for what? Or salvation. Um, but and again, that, that belief doesn't come from myself. That belief is worked by the Word itself, by the Holy Spirit. Why in some it works faith and why in some it doesn't, that's a mystery that, that we're going to leave for God. Um, we don't have the answer to um, But it is. But for those, for everyone who believes, um, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, um, this is showing mostly that that the gospel was proclaimed first to the to the Jews as a nation. God proclaimed His gospel through them. That is, that He Jesus is to be seen. You know, that's what the whole purpose of this nation, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, was to preserve God's promise. So He was for them. You know, uh, He was sent to them. That is, He was one of them. Right. And everyone else. Um, in this case, to the Jew first and also the Greek, the, the, the word there is Greek. I think the NIV will say Gentile there. There's a different word for Gentiles, but it's kind of getting to the same point. Um, to the first to the to the people uh, of, of God in the Old Testament, the Hebrews. Because Jesus was among them, right? But then to the to the Gentiles. Uh, what is the righteousness of God? a big question. Ten minutes, but let's get it started. What is the righteousness of God? It's worked by the. Well, that so that becomes the question. What is it? Like, is it um, right? What does righteousness mean? 
it's, it's, it's to be right, to be just, right? So the question is like whether this is referring to, is it the righteousness that is God's kind of inherently by his nature? He is righteous. He is righteous, yes. That's, the, that's, that's, that's part of who God is. But his righteousness is also a, a quality in him that he also requires of others. He says, I'm righteous, therefore, you know, like, you don't get a pass on this. There are some things that God is that God never asks of you. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. Which is all of a sudden, this has to be a relief, doesn't it? That God doesn't require you to be everywhere. You know, the schedule might try to do that, but God doesn't expect it of you. To be all-powerful. God is all-powerful. He doesn't expect it. He is that. I don't have to know it all. Uh, uh, omnipotence is a, is a quality of God. He doesn't expect you to do that. He doesn't expect you to know it. Um, but righteousness, justice, mercy, love, those are things that God says you also be. Um, as a father um, in heaven is perfect, therefore you be perfect. Like there's, there, there's this. Um, so when, when Paul uses that here, is it talking about God? The righteousness of God as God's kind of this eternal attribute that he also then requires of you or is it something different uh, this is going to come up later especially in chapter 3 um, where it's going to become clear to us that this is not talking about this eternal attribute of God the God's immutable righteousness because he's talking about here in the context what is he talking about he's talking about the gospel it's the power of God but what does this gospel do? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. See how that could sound? In the gospel, the righteousness of God, I mean, if God shows how righteous he is, and therefore how different you are from him. Does that sound like the gospel to you? God shows you that he's perfect and you're not. Is that the gospel? No. Um, and, and this is going to be big. This is really big. This path, this verse for, for Luther, um, because that that first way, that's the way he was understanding this, and that people that, that in his day they were they were understanding the righteousness of God is this thing that God is God is just. Of course, God's just. And now he reads that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. I'm like, great. I already thought it was terrible. Now the gospel tells me I'm not righteous too. God is righteous. Of course, he is. Good for you know, good for him. It's so like if that's the if that's the gospel, if that's what's proclaimed in the gospel, we kind of look what you said about the law. Like, is is the righteousness of God law? But he says it's in the gospel that this is proclaimed. Okay, so what is the righteousness of God then? If we're saying this is what the gospel proclaims, it is a righteousness of God. But it is a righteousness not just simply that he's righteous and demands that we be. It is, it is the righteousness by which he calls and makes us, gives his own righteousness to us, of course, through Jesus. In the gospel, this righteousness of God that is given to us is revealed. That's what the gospel is, is revealing this, this plan by which God um, brings his own righteousness um, through his son to us. And it is, uh, this is a hard 
phrase, this from faith for faith. I think the NIV says by faith from first to last. What they're trying to do is kind of paraphrase it, trying to get to it. It's, this is literal. It's, it's out of faith to faith. From faith to faith. Um, which could be kind of like, um, when you say from end to end, right? You kind of, um, or there's, same on one end as on the other. It's faith, and that's why the enemy says from faith from first to last. Um, but probably this first faith goes with it. It is, it is revealed, the righteousness of God revealed. It's actually, the verb is out of, out of place that reveal the righteousness of God by faith. But the righteousness of God doesn't come by your doing better or being righteous. The righteousness of God comes by faith. Right? This is the vehicle by which God delivers this righteousness to us. Uh, and it is for faith. That it... I love this expression, though. We have it in John 1. Um, we've received grace upon grace. It's kind of like Something that builds on itself. It, it, it's like a, like a circle. That it, it's, it's always it, grace upon grace. It's just kind of overflowing, boom, 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 boom like two-fisted kind of um, distribution. Um, that that this, re, this righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Um, so. But we'll see that again in chapter 3. Finally, number 9. Evaluate this statement. The message of the New Testament is that salvation is by faith and no longer by works. And that's kind of referring to this last verse in it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So by faith is this, this uh, theme through the New Testament. And so, what do you think? The message of the New Testament is that salvation is by faith and no longer by works. Yeah? I'm seeing some... I see one nodding, no. What do you think? They don't know longer by works, it seemed like we got back up and say the Old Testament, they, they had to do certain things. It could be works. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. Kind of a tricky question. It is a trick question, you're right, you caught it. So, so to say that it's no longer by works, it was never by works. Salvation was never by works. Um, I, you know, in St. Paul, he, in Romans, he's going to say, if, if it could be done by the law, it would be done by the law. But the law doesn't work. Right? So not by works is always, so it's not just then the message of the New Testament. It's the mess, this is the message of the whole. If you, if you want to, well, even then, like it, it's tricky in two places. It's not the message of the New Testament. The Old Testament's message is this too, that salvation is by faith and has never been by works. Even Abraham, and, and Paul's going to do this here in this book, uh, he's going to point back to Abraham and say, look, Abraham wasn't by works either. Abraham is by faith. Genesis 15. Uh, Abraham believed God who was credited to him as righteousness. There's the righteousness of God, right? Credited to him. Um, this is one of those words in the lectionary that I can never say when, we, when we're reading uh, Romans uh, 4. <laughs> Credited, credited to. I always think there's another syllable in there. <laughs> I was start with that. Um, or Genesis, Genesis that is. Yeah, that's the message of the whole scriptures. Uh, and and Paul can wonderfully show this is the same 
This is the same gospel. It's not, we had this kind of idea that the Old Testament was law and the New Testament's the gospel. Oh, if we think, I mean, there is law in the Old Testament. There's law in the New Testament too. It's hard law. It's like, you know, you hear, I mean, Jesus will speak the law and the gospel for today in, in the gospel reading. Um, he speaks the law. He's going to talk about the law, right? Um, he doesn't leave it there. And, and, but then this whole beautiful, beautiful gospel in all the Old Testament. In fact, that's the way we read it. Um, we, as Christians, we read the Old Testament with Jesus in view. Um, we, we read it knowing how this is to be fulfilled. So when we see these, uh, well, we, we see this, it's, um, yeah, it's beautiful. You know, but if, if we don't have Jesus in view, it looks to strange. Still something strange, but we're learning. We're learning to see, see Jesus in it, and that's, that's what makes the Old Testament lovely. Alright, that's we got to 17. I don't know, I think we'll get uh, next time, probably finishing off chapter 2, or chapter 1 here. Um, I've got it hopefully divided up. Small enough chunks that we can get to it and not rush through it, but still get through we will probably, I haven't decided this for sure, but we may take, when we get about halfway through the book or some breaking point, pause, go and do something else for a while and come back. We'll see how, see how quick we are. All right. Shall we close with uh, the doxology?